Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Friends, our focus today is on an area of healthcare delivery that, in my opinion, is going to see a fundamental transformation over the next three to five years. And what I'm referring to is this post-hospital discharged or post-acute care transition. It's an area that, in my opinion, is ripe for disruption with tremendous implications around readmissions, total cost of care, but most importantly, the impact it has on patients' morbidity and mortality, as well as on patients' families. Now, before I introduce our amazing guest today, I'd like to make a request of you all. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review. It helps others find the podcast. Also, if you find value in this podcast, please share it with others through LinkedIn or Twitter. A growing number of you are doing this each episode, and I truly appreciate you for spreading the mission and the message of creating a new healthcare. So our guest today, uh, Yoni Stein, is a serial entrepreneur who started his journey as a software engineer at Microsoft. Having completed an MBA at Harvard Business School, Yoni joined RPX Corp as a founding member of the insurance business. After RPX went public, Yoni left to co-found and merge a tech fund into Fortress Investment Group, where he spent six years as an investor. Yoni moved to Israel and launched Laguna Health, a digital recovery assurance company. And we're going to hear about that, a lot about that from him. And he launched this company, Laguna Health, with, with his longtime friend and colleague from Microsoft, Yael Pellid Adam. Uh, in addition, Laguna just brought on board an amazing physician, a Dr. Alan Spiro, uh, who just came on board as the president and the chief medical officer of Laguna Health. I, I am hoping sometime in the next few months to also have uh, a, an opportunity to interview Alan. He's got just an unbelievable background. Um, uh, you know, as a physician, as a physician leader, as a serial entrepreneur, also as a, as a data scientist, just amazing, amazing experience. And so um, I'm looking forward to having Alan on as well. So Yoni, uh, well, first of all, thank you. Uh, I know you're in Tel Aviv and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure. So Yoni, in our uh, email correspondence, I asked you a question about a burning issue for you that you wanted to discuss, and I'm going to quote you here and let you respond to it. Uh, and I love this quote, by the way. You said, or you wrote, reframing the conversation from readmission to recovery and from providers to payers. Recovery is everyone's problem, but nobody's job. We're making it Laguna's job. Now, let me read that again, because I just I think that is such a powerful statement. I think you should go into marketing, Yoni, just <laughs> magical words. Reframing the conversation from readmission to recovery and from providers to payers. Recovery is everyone's problem and nobody's job, and we're making it look at this job. I love the phrase, reframing from the conversation from readmission to recovery and from providers to payers. But Yoni, I, what do you mean by that? And also, uh, what do you mean that it's nobody's job? Of course. No, uh, again, happy to be here and happy to provide a bit more um, detail and nuance in that. I think it's a fascinating challenge that is certainly not new or novel. Uh, I think it 
it existed since the dawn of care delivery. I do think, though, that we're living in interesting times, as the expression goes, that create fascinating tailwinds from a technological and care delivery standpoint that enable us to finally make a real improvement in this problem. And so first of all, you know, kind of readmissions and post-hospital, post-transition uh, uh, recovery existed since the, the, the dawn of, of history. Uh, and certainly over the last decade uh, with the Affordable Care Act and hospital readmission reduction program, that problem has been you know, thrown into the CMS spotlight, if you will. And CMS very much focused on health systems and on penalizing them on outcomes. In the usually, the, the, the measurement uh, stick was usually the 30 days post-discharge. And hospitals were incentivized to uh, care about this and to improve that recovery journey. But that was a 30-day window. And, you know, their ability to influence that dramatically uh, is limited, and th this is really not the core expertise. And what we realized is that we should reframe the conversation from avoiding that 30-day readmission to looking at the entire recovery journey and at any and all adverse outcomes of that recovery journey. And unfortunately, there's a full spectrum of adverse outcomes that, of course, has the infamous adverse event of a readmission, it is certainly adverse if it is preventable. If it's not preventable, then is just the reality of it. But if it is preventable, which over half of the cases turn out to be preventable, mm. it's certainly an adverse event along with substance use issues, along with behavioral health, mental health challenges, productivity and disability for commercial uh, population, et cetera. And in, in terms of the second comment about everyone's problem and nobody's job, mm -hmm. in the complicated U.S. healthcare ecosystem between the patients and payers and providers, no one is really benefiting from excessive readmissions. Even in a fee-for-service ecosystem, between HRP, star ratings, HEDA score, risk arrangements for health systems, Providers are looking to avoid excessive readmissions. Payers are certainly motivated to avoid that massive cost component of the readmission populations. And goes without saying, patients are not happy to be readmitted if it is avoidable. And we're saying that it's really nobody's job, more importantly, from the business model standpoint. Because the nuanced reality is that in reality, you're seeing multiple entities that think it is their job, uh, be it care navigation, TCM companies or transitional mm -hmm. care management, uh, advocates, et cetera. But nobody really owns that episode, has the technology and clinical tools to move the needle consistently and efficiently in a scalable way. And last but not least, has the business model, the risk-oriented, the outcomes-driven business model to back it up. I love what you said. Uh, and I don't know that I've ever in the years, if not decades, that I've been involved in this issue of readmissions. I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone talk about it as a recovery and certainly not a recovery journey which I really, really appreciate you framing it that way or reframing it that way. And, you know, to your point, 
this isn't just a, you know, yes, for hospital systems, healthcare systems, payers, this is a, a number. It's a statistic. It is indicative uh, largely of safety and quality. In fact, it's used as a, a safety and quality marker. Um, in addition, it's a business financial marker because readmissions are costly, not only now with the fines imposed uh, uh, on hospital systems, but a readmission means that a hospital bed and resources are being uh, used that could be used for new patients uh, that need that bed as well, and uh, and quite honestly, higher paying margins on new patients rather than readmission. So from a business, financial, quality, safety, and most importantly, it isn't a statistic or number. It means that we've sent a patient home. And to your point, if in fact 50%, and I, I think that's probably right, and in some cases probably it's higher, uh, 50 or more percent are preventable, that means we're actually, we failed the patient. Um, we sent them home and haven't done what we could to help them stay healthy. And as a result, they've needed to come back to the emergency room or emergency department and hospital. So, so thank you. I do wanna dive in, Yoni, to a couple of things you just mentioned, which are, you know, we've had this problem forever, as you point out. And I would say we've had, you know, to your point, very, very point solutions, right? So uh, hiring, uh, you know, TCM managers or, or nurse case managers or care managers to call or even home health. These are spot solutions. And oftentimes we miss that really fragile period in the first seven to 14 days, um, or even in the first 24 to 48 hours after discharge, um, when we know that's where most of the issues take place. And so I guess the questions are, and please take them in whatever order you think is best, but one is it, the problem's been around and we've we've been throwing solutions at it, but the solutions are using legacy technology, legacy processes. What about, you know, as you're saying now, the tech enablement has made us able to do something that is better and more efficient and more effective. So interested in, in specifically what it is that you do. What does is, what is Laguna Health actually do to prevent readmissions, the preventable readmissions? And, you know, how does the business model work? Um, so very interested in, in what you do, the technology that allows you to do it, and the business model. Certainly. So those th three topics, I think, that we're covering here, uh, first of all, uh, the technology-enabled solution that we're building, uh, what changed, I would say, over the last decade, and more uh, specifically over the last two years since uh, the COVID pandemic uh, has been, you know, sweeping uh, across the globe, and three, the business model uh, we're uh, offering uh, for this technology-enabled solution. And so I'll start at the first. The technology-enabled solution really comprises of three key pillars. The centerpiece, if you will, is the member-facing app that is really your recovery journey hub that starts, in fact, prior to your recovery journey, or if you will, that discharge moment. It starts at the moment of you scheduling a scheduled surgery, outpatient, ASC, or inpatient, or ED admission. And the earlier we're seeing that, that the earlier we're able to engage, the more impactful we are, both from a prehab, as one of our partners calls it, both in terms of the mental and physiological preparation mm -hmm. for the procedure and in terms of our ability to build trust and create an empathetic relationship that follows 
in the weeks and months post-discharge. So that is the member app. Number two is the purpose-built case management platform that we've built from the ground up for our set of integrative or multidisciplinary clinicians that are mostly behavioral health-oriented clinicians, as well as RN and pharmacists. And that case management platform that we call Harmony makes them essentially do more with less, makes them more efficient and effective, makes all the salient information very much actionable for them. And last but not least is what we call the care model engine, which constantly analyzes the recovery barriers. And mind you, going back to the recovery challenges that we touched on previously, there are multi-tiered. There's, of course, all the medical or clinical challenges. But in addition to that, we have a broad uh, set of behavioral health or substance use issues. We have a set of, of social, financial, DME, care navigation issues. Every single one of those challenges trips up and adds another layer of complexity that ultimately lead to that adverse event. And that care model engine constantly analyzes that data to propose a digital driven interaction or engagement via the app or a human one. And when I say human one, that is the one driven by our set of integrative clinicians. So that's on the tech enabled solution front. You said so much that you talked about this three elements, the member facing app that actually starts before surgery. Um, I love that to, to build trust and empathy and, and actually do prehab, which is a create a, a situation where the patient is has optimized themselves for surgery, which we know actually the tremendous literature that actually demonstrates that outcomes are improved if you do that. The second one is Harmony, your case management platform, uh, which you said multiple disciplines, clinicians, behavioral health pharmacists, nurses, and third was this a care model engine. You talked about it focusing not on the clinical, not just on the clinical, but behavioral uh, substance abuse and, and the sort of psychosocial financial equipment issues. Couple of questions here. Do you, through either the case management or the, or the care model engine, because you talked about data, what kinds of data are you collecting on the patient? Are you monitoring the patient with remote monitors? Are you asking them questions? How are you in touch with the patient themselves after they leave the hospital. Of course, absolutely. And that goes to why is now an exciting time for us to be offering this solution? Why is it now a feasible uh, uh, solution, both from an impact and efficiency and scalability and affordability of the solution standpoint? And, the, and, and that goes kind of to your question. The, the, I would say the first challenge that is finally uh, doable these days is what we call patient interception. How do you know that they're scheduling uh, a, a, a surgery or being admitted? Uh, this is finally possible uh, using tools like ADT and HAE uh, platforms. A ADT stands for Admission Discharge Transfer Feed, which now covers some 94% of the beds in the country. And then you have regional health information exchanges that provide additional insight into EHR information and additional data about the patients, including sometimes the discharge note, which is essentially our fundamental roadmap for the recovery journey. And in terms of our engagement with the member, we're really trying to establish that behavioral health foundation such that we're able to avoid the onset of depression and anxiety. And once we've overcame this challenge, 
who really want to focus on self-management and motivate people, motivate mm -hmm. the members to adhere and comply, as is the terminology, understand and act on that set of instructions provided by the discharging institution. All of that now is available either via working directly with the institution or by working with the health information exchanges. You know, when you talked about the case management platform, and, and I don't know if, if this is a tech platform, but when you said that and you talked about the pharmacists and nurses and, and in my mind, behavioral health people, you know, I almost see sort of a 24-7 command center. How is the person to person? Who's, who's monitoring yeah. this data? How is it 24-7? How often are they monitoring? How are they responding to the patient, reaching out, et cetera? Absolutely. And I'll start at the Behavioral Health Foundation. That was the first insight, if you will, that we had from that clinical care model standpoint. What we found out is what most clinicians and discharge experts focused on was insufficient. What they often focus on is on three topics, which is understanding your signs and symptoms, adhering to your medicine regimen and adhering to your therapy regimen. And without a doubt, every single one of them is critical. But as it turns out that if you are, to your point about the psychosocial, if your foundational behavioral health, if your foundational social kind of SDOH platform is not right, you will never elevate, so to speak, to these layers. And that is why we built our clinical care model very much focused on establishing that trust, on building that behavioral health foundation that enables you to self-you the member, to self-manage. What we're doing for that is have most of the week operating hours. We will get to weekends and nights as well. And we're building those touch points via chat via video, via telephone, of course, all the information is available through the app. And we're offering essentially members a choose your own adventure, if you will, uh, type of engagement with Laguna. And what I mean by that, not everyone are looking to interact with a coach. And that is important to recognize and stratify accordingly. And what we're seeing is that some 40% of members are looking for digital only experience. Some 40% are looking for digital primary. And as you might imagine, the higher acuity, 20% are looking for human primary. Is your staff, uh, your clinicians or others, do you have sort of a dashboard that is being monitored? Is this sort of more real time or is it sort of intermittent as you're following patients? It is currently intermittent. What the app enables us to do is to start integrating with a ecosystem of RPM and wearable solutions that exist. And that goes back to the previous comment that it's nobody's job. Mm -hmm. RPM enables us to ingest a, a, you know, a broad set of data and own it and engage accordingly driven by that input. I know, obviously, your chief medical officer just, at least you announced, recently came on board, so you may not have worked this out yet, but do you have, sort of from a clinical operational perspective, are there certain biometrics or certain, uh, like you said, sort of symptoms, signs, activities, behaviors that, how many elements are you, or you know, pieces of data, streams of data are you monitoring? Let's say if, if I just had uh, some abdominal or chest surgery or open heart surgery, how much are you looking at or has that, is that yet to be discovered or even customized per, to the patient and to the situation? 
So currently we focus predominantly on cardiovascular set of DRGs and cardiovascular presents an interesting opportunity from us, both in terms of the percent of folks who go through surgery due to cardiovascular issues, and then the readmission rates, costs, and the body of research that has looked at readmission reduction or preventable readmission reduction uh, within cardiovascular. And then again, we, we look at several, I would say, buckets of data. Uh, without a doubt, those the biological or physiological one that we're getting both from the discharging institution and from patient reporting outcomes, as well as some of the RPM integrations that we're looking into now. As importantly, and we're seeing more impactful is some of the contextual information and we're working with two leaders in the space with Alan Swartz and with uh, Saul Wiener, who really over the last 20 years built a whole body of knowledge on how the context of someone's care is as impactful as the clinical reality of it. And all of that is data that we're gathering and driving through harmony and through our clinical touch points with our coaches. Could you give us an example of a data point that would, or stream that would come out of the context? Like, what do you mean by context? One of the patients had a very interesting challenge or a requirement, if you will, in their rehab and their cardiac rehab was to move around and they could not leave their house because their recovery barrier, as we call it, was an access to a COVID vaccine. And so from, and, and that is very much a, care coordination, or if you will, a contextual that is within the context of their life mm -hmm. challenge that directly impacts or inhibits their ability to recover well. And our action there in terms of mitigating or removing that roadblock was, of course, getting them access and transportation to that COVID vaccine, getting them back on their feet and, you know, successfully completing that recovery journey. You know, you, you mentioned the social determinants of health and, and behavioral health and context. And I, again, can't tell you how much I respect that and appreciate that. And how, obviously, as you know, how important that is, as you just pointed out, uh, that often the outcomes of care, in fact, do more to those uh, issues than clinical issues. You know, it's interesting. I, I posted a podcast uh, about a month ago about uh, Medically Home with Rafael Rakowski. And one of the comments I got from a listener afterwards um, was that, uh, you know, this is well and good for, you know, people who can afford these sorts of things and, and have the psychosocial and finances and, and the home environment to make it work. But what about those who can't, which is, uh, is not a small percentage of folks, uh, at least in the U.S. and probably across the globe. And so I really appreciate you pointing that out. And, and specifically, how would you have responded to that person who says, hey, um, it's well and good for the more affluent patients, but what about the rest of us? What would you have said to that person? This is why this is so exciting for us, because a failed recovery, going back to the recovery journey and the cost and implication of an adverse outcome are so severe not only for the patient, and especially to your point from that patient in the lower social tier, social economical tier, it, 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 is, it is driving many tens of thousands of dollars for the payer ultimately, be it the employer or MA plan or certainly Medicare or that risk-oriented provider, which creates 
that incentive to invest a significant amount in avoiding that adverse outcome. So what we find interesting, and that perhaps ties to your previous question about the business model, Mm -hmm. what we find interesting in that recovery journey is that it presents this extreme inflection point such that a successful recovery journey would essentially entail that member recovering to a fairly healthy and fairly inexpensive position, whereas a failed recovery would essentially lead to a spiraling out of control of quality of life and cost. Hmm. And, And the reason this is interesting is this provides us a meaningful incentive also from an economic standpoint to tackle these behavioral, social, and logistical challenges to avoid that costly adverse event and to be paid accordingly to that outcome. I, I want to get to the business model and payment because like, it's such a stumbling block for so many offerings that are really uh, making care better and overall reducing costs. You know, you talked about, you know, behavioral health and how, if I was a patient discharged, I'm on the app, you're following me, how would you identify if I was, let's say, becoming depressed or having panic attacks or something else? How would you identify it? And then how would you respond? What, what would be the mechanism? And I don't know if it's that care model engine you talked about. I mean, maybe you could say uh, something about that as well. Of course. So there's several ways to do that. One of them is through the engagement, through the member-facing app. And as importantly, there are a set of PHU and GED questionnaires that are being performed regularly to, of course, assess that type of onset of depression and anxiety Last but not least, we have regular and very frequent. Our folks speak with us multiple times. As many, the the record holder is 27 times in the first month post-discharge. And that is exactly what our clinicians and coaches are focusing on, is to really pinpoint that self-management, that behavioral health or mental health condition of members and the entire care model, as as I mentioned, is focused on managing it to the best ability of that member. It's really, really exciting. And I'm, again, just fantastic work. You know, you mentioned medications and my understanding is that medications is is one of the major causes of readmissions as well, uh, particularly in the elderly. What do you doing about that? Are you, again, sort of also reaching out, checking that patients are taking their meds, able to to get their meds? No, and and that's interesting because medications um, present multiple recovery barriers. Again, that's kind of the lingo or framework that we're using. And they present uh, challenges both in terms of access to that medication and the financial barriers. And I'll give you an example of another member that we've seen that had a workers' comp-related injury and admission, and the set of medications that they were prescribed exceeded $600, and they had an issue from a financial standpoint of filing the necessary claims. And so we we focus on that as well, and that perhaps kind of is the broader 
uh, perspective on some of the ecosystem partnerships that we're looking at and why now is the time to do so, you now have a robust set of partners for medication delivery, for DME delivery, for transportation, and other recovery barriers that we do not have to build the whole vertically integrated, if you will, solution, but rather, as I mentioned earlier, focused on becoming that recovery hub and partnering up with the medication-focused companies, with DME, transportation, et cetera. So you're creating a vertical integration and with others that can sort of focus on more specific issues. That's, again, really, really fantastic. Who are your customers that you're speaking to or working with? Who are your target customers and, and who's paying you for this, I guess, is really the question. And then how does that business model work? Because, again, I think one of the challenges with this sort of work going into the home using monitoring, that sort of thing, the fee structure isn't quite there. And I'm interested if you think it is or, you know, and it's often kind of forcing you to go into a value-based payment model. So I'm just kind of curious how you all are putting that together. I would say, first of all, that who's paying is very much by design aligned to be our customer. And so specifically, we look at three markets, the self-funded employers, health plans, primarily the Medicare Advantage health plans, and then the risk-oriented providers, where the common denominator, if you will, between these three between these three markets is all three of them are existing risk bearers or essentially payers, direct or indirect, for patient outcomes. That is fundamentally important because that aligns them with the patients and aligns them with us and with the health and well-being and cost of that member, which puts a significant amount of dollars at risk. To give you an example, within the working age or commercial population world, the readmitted patients are driving some 13, 13% 13 of the entire spend on readmissions alone. I'm not talking about the, what we call the primary admissions. And because this drives so many dollars, we're able to offer a risk-oriented model that really ranges from being paid on engaged case rate to a blended engaged plus outcome. And again, an outcome, we have the actuarial flexibility to offer 30, 60, 90-day type of outcome, such as readmission avoidance, or being paid on outcome, which is essentially putting full risk on fees. Wow. You're really putting your money where your mouth is. You're saying that you can deliver on outcomes and basing your revenue on that. Exactly. And that is how we started the company. We started the company with a pretty deep actuarial foundation and started the company by engaging with North Shore University Health System out of Chicago and Mayo Clinic to develop the clinical models and outcomes analysis to drive these risk-oriented models. So in working with North Shore and working with the Mayo Clinic, you know, you you just said, and I had never heard this uh, number that thirteen percent of a of a hospital spend is it or a payer spend, uh, which is is it thirteen percent is is due to readmissions? Can you clarify that? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, we found and we published this in Population Health Management Journal and additional mm-hmm. publications is that within the commercial population, 
about 1% of the entire population of patients are driving over 20% of spend, of which 13% is readmissions, or if you will, the accumulation of cost after discharge, of which is readmission and then the ensuing cost. And there's a you know, rapid uh, acceleration of that cost as they get readmitted. Okay, so it's 13% of the 20% spend that is due to the 1%. That actually sounds confusing, but it makes sense to me. To repeat that, <laughs> it is 13% of the entire spend. So to put it differently, ah, in okay. a commercial population of some 100,000 members, working age members, mm-hmm. that would mean $70 million a year mm-hmm. are spent on the readmitted population wow. after discharge. Wow, that uh, that's bigger than I thought. Okay, so it is 13% of the total spend. When was that population health management paper? It was published about six months back. Uh, it accumulates uh, just to double down on that rocking number. It amounts to as much as $80 billion in commercial population and about $107 billion in the Medicare one. So this is one of the many reasons we're so excited, if you will, about the prospect here. There's a huge opportunity to dramatically improve the trajectory mm-hmm. of people's recovery journey and improve it to the optimal and maximal level. And then, of course, also the cost that you can save from being wasted really is significant as well. And it was through the, your, your work with the Mayo and North Shore that you figured out what the sort of return, what would the decrease in, in spend was from your intervention and therefore, so what, what the return is. And again, I'm, I'm just, as you're trying to make an argument to whether it be, you know, hospital systems that are taking risk or employers, uh, self-insured employers, or as you say, you know, Medicare Advantage health plans, you're going in with numbers in terms of this is, this is what we identified as the savings. Exactly right. And that, is, and that is exactly what we aim to demonstrate in those clinical trials is really to quantify that impact analysis and demonstrate that we're effective in engaging over two thirds of the patients and lowering close to 75% of these readmissions for the engaged population, which of course is impactful and exciting for us, both from impact standpoint and the risk-oriented engagement model standpoint. You're in the middle of clinical trials now? Exactly. Okay. Do you have any sense of when they'll they'll be ready for publication or? We expect that the North Shore study will wrap up by the end of the year. Fantastic. Wow. That's, that's great. And could you just, again, sort of sum up what you, you know, know to date in terms of, and particularly a question I was going to ask you is, is this something that you would apply to or use in all surgeries, or are you targeting the more, uh, the higher risk uh, surgeries and or patients? Yeah, yeah no, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, I'll start with that one. Certainly leading conditions that are interesting for us and interesting for different reasons, if you will. Cardiovascular, so to speak, takes the Olympic gold because it presents also one of the highest readmission rates and readmission costs, and then the reduction of those preventable readmissions. So that's exciting from that standpoint. MSK is different and no less, if not more exciting. And orthopedic or musculoskeletal um, surgeries are interesting because there's an established 
risk contracting infrastructure in place, number one. It's also exciting that while they usually have a far lower readmission rates, but they have exceptionally high behavioral health or substance use challenges that are foundational to our clinical model and impact and very relevant to MSK. And again, focusing on the pair as that customer is very important because to my point about having a spectrum of adverse events, developing a clinical depression after surgery, which happens to some 45% of of several MSK procedures, increases the cost of care of that member dramatically. And so that is no less impactful for that payer and us as well. Respiratory is another interesting condition. And these are really some of the leading DRGs that we focus on. Makes a lot of sense. It's impressive, but not surprising that for people who have surgery, who have depression, um, that the cost would also be much higher. That's fantastic. How many patients have you already deployed your approach with? Hundreds at this point. Yeah, I'd love to dive into so much of this. Uh, again, going back to your model and your approach and the care model engine you talked about, but it sounds like you have protocols. You're, you're sending you're sending questionnaires or surveys out to patients, getting feedback. So you're, it sounds to me, this is like a daily thing that you're reaching out. Clearly you start even prior to the surgery and getting the patient on the app and, and enrolled. Is it up and running literally the moment they get home? It is up and running as at the moment they get into the ASC or acute hospital. Some of the impact is actually achieved in that warm handoff in the system. But to, to, to go back to your previous comment, I don't think you're missing anything. In fact, what I find fascinating here is taking a broad uh, look at the entire landscape, right? Because we live in very interesting times from a digital health standpoint, where there's a plethora of care navigation and transitional and condition management or disease management solutions. And it's interesting because we're looking at this slightly differently, uh, uh, really along kind of this two by two uh, that focuses on focus versus broad navigation and then transitional versus chronic. And we've seen many condition management companies really focus on chronic longitudinal uh, conditions, be it MSK, diabetes, mental health companies. And then Dr. Alan Spiro, the president, chief medical officer of Laguna, was, again, one, one of the original designers of the Acolyte care model that looked at broad navigation. Where we differ is that we have an episodic or transitional focus that goes deep on these transitions. And these transitions are or the fragmentation of the health system is meeting the patient head on and where that inflection of outcomes and cost is is so pronounced, which is a natural uh, opportunity to start moving to value-based care and risk-oriented business models. How long do you follow the patient in this transition episode, in this recovery journey? Certainly, it it varies. It varies by the condition. 
it very, and that is why we're reframing the conversation to the recovery journey. To give you an example, within cardiovascular, you want to follow them by over a month. <laughs> Again, which puts kind of the whole 30-day readmission uh, with a big question mark, kind of why that line in the sand was drawn at 30 days. In cardiovascular conditions, cardiac rehab starts six weeks after discharge. And we're seeing that even in the best health systems in the country, the adherence or engagement rate of cardiac rehab is in the single digit rate, let's say it that way. And we want to make sure that we not only avoid these early on adverse outcomes, such as 30 day readmission, we optimize the entire recovery journey. And so in that case, we follow folks for 90 days. That's a great point too. I've been involved in some work around cardiac rehab, it's surprising how effective it is. And yet to your point, um, single digits in terms of the percentage of patients who need it, who would benefit greatly, who actually use it. And so it sounds to me like you're, you're helping to facilitate even that. Exactly. What led you to do this? I mean, you come from a different background and I'm sure there were lots of things you, you could, I know there's lots of things you could have applied yourself to and been incredibly successful. Why this? Of course, um, both of us, I would say on the personal level, have seen the challenges and cost, let's say from a very personal standpoint of a failed recovery journey. Uh, I have lost a very close family member on a failed transition. And Yale, who's been an Olympic athlete, has been through multiple, multiple surgeries and recovery challenges uh, her own. And for us as COVID started, which forced the world and us to reimagine acute care delivery. And, and again, I salute medically home in driving the virtualization of care delivery and moving along hospital at home, which is an, an amazing vision in my opinion. And then also for the people transitioning from hospitals to home. And mind you, when COVID started, uh, length of stay was shortened. Hospitals were, you know, packed with COVID patients, which made the home transition and recovery even more so challenging. And at that point, and even now, there's not a whole lot of infrastructure built to support that home recovery journey. And that was really the moment where we realized this is such a fragmented ecosystem. And this is such a painful outcome, both for the patient provider and payer. And this is the perfect opportunity that is finally feasible now with tailwinds that COVID created. So COVID didn't, did not only made the problem worse, if you will, it also created an acceptance of digital de delivery of care. It made the, the behavioral health as a clinical care model popular, and it paved the way finally for value-based or risk-oriented models. All of those components serve as tailwinds for the Laguna solution. You know, you're coming into healthcare. It's not like you've spent your entire career in healthcare. You're relatively new, I think. And, you know, you and Yael uh, and your colleagues are coming in and you're clearly, you have a different way of thinking, a different sensibility. I'm just kind of wondering about that. You know, is there some sort of underlying set of principles or way you think that is different or how would you characterize it? 
You know, I spent almost a decade of my life uh, more on the business side of things. Uh, both uh, Yael, my co-founder, and I started as software engineers, and then I moved to as you mentioned earlier, uh, to be one of the founding members of an insurance operation within a fast-moving startup, and then one of the founding members of an investment fund. And I think what that equipped me with is thinking very closely about the incentive structure of various markets. And as it turns out, it is crucially important in digital health and certainly in the modernization of care delivery to understand incentives and how your solution fits within that web, if you will, of various market participants. And I would say it's quite fascinating, fascinating to me, certainly, you know, kind of as a originally geeky and techie Israeli, where I used to think, oh my God, technology is a silver bullet for all of the world ailments. As it turns out, healthcare is more complicated than that. And it is vitally important to consider both the cl clinical model as well as your technology-enabled solution. And last but not least is really the business and incentive landscape and how your solution gets fitted in into that ecosystem, creating value for all participants, both the providers and the patients and the payers, and aligning your risk or business model to that. Yeah, fantastic. I couldn't agree more with you. And uh, it took me a lot longer to come to that realization that it, it has taken you to figure that out. If you were going to give some advice to senior healthcare leaders in hospital systems across the country, what would that be? As I mentioned earlier, we're living through interesting times. And, you know, especially within health systems, I encourage them, and certainly the leading ones are practicing that better than most to consider that rapid evolution of the delivery of care around the country. Because as it turns out, the innovator's dilemma, that famous uh, Professor Clay Christensen uh, book and theory is now being you know, accelerated within healthcare. And if these health systems will not take the lead in that evolution of care delivery, I think what we're seeing certainly over the last couple of years is that other upstarts, either faster moving incumbents or digital health startups uh, will take the lead. Uh, and so I think it's fascinating for us. It's fascinating times for both providers, patients, and payers as we're moving to a bolder and healthier and more economical future. And I encourage everyone to be very thoughtful uh, about that outlook and to be at the forefront of that innovation. Thank you for that advice. So I'm really looking forward maybe next time to having you and, and your chief medical officer, uh, Alan, uh, Dr. Spiro on, hear more about where what you've accomplished uh, you know, as you move forward. Um, and as I do, Yoni, every time that I post a podcast episode, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. Or those of you out there who are supporting those who are directly taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do. Recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society, and especially uh, in these times uh, in the uh, COVID pandemic. My friends, again, Yoni, thank you so much for the work you're doing, you and your colleagues are doing at Laguna Health. 
This is Zeb Neuwirth on Creating New Healthcare, my friends. Until next time, be safe and be well.